When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Your night, summer or winter. He's the sound of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Morena, New Zealand, good morning to you on uh, this Thursday. Uh, busy week it's been, uh, particularly uh, focusing on uh, the cricket and deservedly so. Uh, rugby taking uh, just a little bit of a break at the moment. Uh, so cricket holding centre stage, and it's going to do that for us for the first hour this morning um, with uh, a couple of uh, interesting characters, shall we say. Uh, Mark Orams uh, will also come in after 10 o'clock. Now, he's a sailing professor, uh, and uh, the entries for the America's Cup opened up yesterday, and uh, there's quite a lot of interest, uh, which is very, very good news. Uh, Ollie Ritchie and Mark Hinton at uh, 10.20 this morning. They will be the panel. Uh, Ricardo Ball after 11 o'clock as well. Uh, and that's to, to catch up on the beautiful game that is football, uh, pacing for purpose as well. It's being Thursday, and we'll give our inter-show bet, our last opportunity to perhaps uh, wrap it up this week. We shall see. Anyway, here we go with, um, with uh, what I think will be quite a diverse Thursday. Sport is our religion, and here is Smithy's Sermon. And just like the great man himself, Tim Southey's stocks seem to rise the longer he keeps running in. His performance in Kanpur in less than friendly fast bowling conditions was exemplary alongside a new tandem partner in Kyle Jamieson, his regular one not required for this mini-series. Just how many quicks worldwide have a matching workload across all three formats of top-level cricket, especially those in their 13th year of service? 18,184 times he's hit that bowling crease in Test cricket for 322 wickets over 80 Test matches. Throw in five usually entertaining 50s and the fact that he's developed a great pair of catching hands anywhere on the park, I'd say even now he's earned a pretty decent pension. One of the standout qualities though for me that he, he always seems to be front and centre in terms of availability. Now there is a commentator's curse if there's ever been one. Uh, and I forgot leadership as well. He certainly also got that club in the bag. So exactly which branch of the tree does Tim occupy these days when it comes to our strikers? Just 39 wickets behind the evergreen Daniel Vittori, who's head and shoulders the best tweaker. But Saudi has played 32 less tests. He will have his old buddy in his sights and body permitting, he will sit above him in time. But we all have to crane our necks to see who sits atop. Unbelievably, there is a generation now that never saw the great Sir Richard Hadley bowl. 
There's the odd highlight reel still played, but uh, fathers generally have to relate to sons just how incredible he was. Or maybe just point them towards the stats cricket favourite unlying tool. In 86 tests, just six more than Tim, RJH ran in 21,918 times for his once world record 431 test victims. Ironically, they have both bowled in 150 innings. 36 times 5 wickets in an innings, 9 times 10 in a match. Throw in a couple of test hundreds, 15 fifties and also a terrific pair of hands. Now there is the definition of a world-class all-rounder. People sometimes scoff at comparisons of errors and that too has its merit. But take it from me, the Knight, the Hall of Famer, would have excelled to the max over any era, this one included. And that's what perfection means. On current form though, I'm pretty sure he'd be happy to let Tim Southey take the new ball with him, but only, only into the wind. Well, the last time New Zealand won a Test match in India was 1988 in Mumbai, and that's where they are this weekend. Our next guest took 10 wickets in the match, a total of 431, which uh, at the time was a world record and is still the most Test wickets taken by a New Zealander. He, of course, uh, is Sir Richard Hadley. Good morning to you, sir. Morning, Smithy. How are you going? I'm good. More importantly, how are you? Uh, how's the health and uh, what are you up to? Oh, doing okay. Um, playing a lot of golf three times a week. In fact, after this phone call, going to head south down to Terrace Downs to have a bit of a game down there. But apparently it's going to be very windy, so it's going to make it more challenging than playing cricket. No, well, you'll just have to hit down one like you usually did, man. <laughs> yeah, but some holes are always into it or across it. That's the way it is in golf. <laughs> That is the way it is in golf. Uh, hey, let's just uh, pop back to 1988, that uh, test uh, match uh, victory in Mumbai where you played, as always, a, a massive part in that. Uh, it's very, very tough to win over there. Well, we know that, and I think you've uh, outlined that, that fact that uh, 88 was the last time we won there. I think we've only won twice in India. I stand corrected on that. Uh, it's just so difficult coming to terms with the conditions, uh, generally the heat and humidity. In fact, when we toured there, it was a lot earlier than um, uh, than the team doing it now in, in December. Uh, but the heat, humidity, and as you know, the sickness problems that you can have uh, and problems with food, trying to get on the field to play when you're not right, and uh, playing against very good Indian sides. And, uh, of course, the massive crowds that are absolutely fanatical, and uh, they're always against it. But they also applaud good cricket, I must point out. And uh, it was a great challenge, but that win in 88 was a, a superb victory. And Moncady Stadium uh, will hold special many, uh, memories for all of us. Yeah, uh, it certainly will. And uh, uh, your, your rivalry uh, you know, with your great mate, um, Kapil Dev, of course, uh, uh, that was one of the highlights of that test match. 
Well, playing always against Capital. I mean, he chased down my target and beat me at the end of the day. Got to 4.34. Mind you, they had to push him in a wheelchair to get past me. He was <laughs> sort of slowed down quite a bit at the end. But Capital uh, and I had some very good contests and battles throughout our career. And uh, clearly, I rate him as a, as a magnificent all-rounder, along with Imran, of course, and Ian Botham. That, that was an incredible era actually, um, the 70s and 80s, more so the 80s, perhaps. But, um, you know, they brought the best out of us. And, uh, yeah, so uh, it was, it was uh, good, good to recall that. Just talking a little bit about uh, Tim Southies this morning and talking about uh, longevity, I, I just it just dawned on me that it was 31, just over 31 years ago, you knocked over Devin Malcolm at Edgebaston and said goodbye at the age of 39. 31 years ago, sir. Yeah, 39 is a bit old for a fast bowler or medium pace bowler by the time I finished my career. Yeah, I had 18 years in the game and, you know, you, I know you've been talking about Tim and uh, he's performed magnificently. He, he's just getting better and better. I was part of the selection panel for chairman and selectors actually when uh, Tim as a 19-year-old got picked for his first test uh, and he played that at McLean Park Napier, got five wickets. Uh, I think he smashed 60 or 70 runs. But I think in the last two or three years, he's just gone to a new level. I think he's just found himself. Uh, he's in the groove. Total control of his game, swinging the ball magnificently and just watching him and analysing him, using the crease uh, superbly. And uh, he's challenging batsmen all, all over the world in, in, in all sorts of conditions at the moment. So uh, full marks to him. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if he plays another 20, 25 test matches that he could go uh, beyond my world record. And that would be a phenomenal achievement because I know what it takes to bowl the amount of balls, to stay fit, play the games uh, and get wickets and be part of a very good bowling lineup uh, because you're actually sharing wickets you know, with Bolte or Wags or uh, Cole Jameson. So sometimes you get your bag, sometimes you get two or three, and somebody else is doing exactly the same thing. So sharing the wickets uh, uh, can can make it a little more difficult for you to get the, the right number of wickets to chase down um, uh, the goal at the end. So you mentioned, uh, you've mentioned Southey, we mentioned Bolt, Jameson, uh, Wagner. Uh, throw in Ferguson, um, Milne, uh, Bracewell, uh, you know these these bowlers that are they just continue to to seem to want to front up these days. Have we been stronger overall in in your point of view? The team you're talking about, or fast bowling? Well, the fast bowling stocks, I guess. Oh, I think that the choices we have are um, are far greater now than what they've ever been, and. The point is you've got genuine pace when you look at Ferguson and, and Milne, who are more sort of one-day specialists. But I think if you look at the test lineup, that combination with Tim and his right-arm swing, you've got Bolte with his left-arm swing, you've got Wags who will run all, all day uh, and bounce the ball and intimidate the batsmen. And, I mean, these guys are 200, 300-plus wickets. It's magnificent. Now you've got Kyle Jamieson who's just burst onto the scene, and what a phenomenal start he's had. And his greatest asset, of course, is, he, is his height. I mean, he's a big, big man and delivering the ball from such a height that he is challenging batsmen in a far different way than all the other bowlers. And he swings it, swings it both ways. So he's a magnificent asset, and we've really got to look after him because if we keep playing him, say, in all formats of the game, there's such a thing as burnout. There's going to be injuries. There'll be niggles and that sort of thing. So I think uh, he's got to be managed very, very well. But we're getting the best value out of, him, out of him in the test match game at the moment. And it's pretty challenging, particularly overseas, 
apply all our quicks at one time. You, you wouldn't as in India or uh, uh, the subcontinent, but in New Zealand we can play all four at one time and we're going to knock sides over and the team's done that over the last uh, you know, couple of seasons. Uh, I think this team in general, if I could just move on to that, uh, is our greatest ever. And I say that when you look at uh, uh, individual batting and bowling ratings, we've got guys there in the top two, three, top ten uh, in world cricket. Um, if you look at averages and strike weights and wick, uh, rates and wicket tallies, uh, they're far better than, say, us generally of the 70s and 80s. And then when you look at the batsmen, you've got guys averaging, you know, 40, 45, and Kane in the 50s. I mean, when you look at the, the experience and the runs, the stats tell a story, and uh, the team of the 70s and 80s can't match those stats and those ratings. So we've got to uh, acknowledge that this team have been absolutely superb, particularly in the last two or three years. I guess the only nemesis that this team would be uh, conscious about, and I think you know exactly what I'm going to say, Smithy, they haven't won in India yet, and they haven't beaten Australia uh, for, we haven't beaten them for, for many, many years and certainly not in Australia for a long, long time. So I think they've got to knock those two teams off, those two challenges, both in India and Australia, whether it be in New Zealand or in in Australia, uh, to be, you know, go down in our history as, as the greatest ever, if not already. It's interesting you say that because I, for one, was just a little bit I will say a little bit critical that they perhaps went a little bit more positive. Uh, you talk about having the opportunity to win in India. I thought uh, there were stages on that fifth day where we had that a genuine opportunity there, um, and uh, I, I'm not quite sure we were ever going to try. But um, what did you make of, of that first test performance all round by uh, by our side? Well, I thought we had a good couple of chances. I thought it was a good effort to restrict India to the well, 350, something like that. And after our opening stand, we should have got certainly that amount of runs, if not a few more, to lead on the first inning. So we didn't we didn't manage that. We actually conceded 40 or 50 runs. And then when we had India 50 for five, effectively 100 runs ahead, we should have been chasing 150. Uh, particularly on that track, was that was a bit up and down, quite difficult to bat on, really. Mm. Um, but again, we didn't take advantage of that, and then we were left to score 280-odd, and uh, we, we were well short. Uh, but we hung in there, and they hung tough. But we were only one ball away from losing that match. And full marks to uh, Ajaz and Rutchin to bat 50-odd balls for the last... Um, uh, session of, of, of play to, to survive. We've got, got to give them full credit for that. Interesting, actually, um, Smith, you won't be aware of this, but in, but in 1976, we played at Kampua, uh, and it was the same ground, Green Park, and it was quite a similar game in the amount of runs scored, and um, we had to chase down 380, actually, to, to win the match, and we finished uh, 7 for 190-odd, but it was bad light that actually saved us as it was uh, uh, in this last game. So, uh, you know, had we batted an extra two, three overs or the next ball, who knows what would have happened. So there's a tight line uh, between drawing that game and losing it, which means it's a tight line between being a hero or severely criticised. <laughs> so that's the nature yeah. of cricket. That is the nature of cricket. Uh, I've read a report uh, where Gary Stead has said they're going to go from uh, basically dark clay in the, the last pitch in Kampur to red, uh, a red surface uh, in 
Mumbai now. A red surface takes me back to uh, Bangalore, of course, um, where you uh, you achieved that goal that you you so desperately uh, were searching for. Uh, seems a long time ago, but um, I remember it pretty well. What, what about yourself? Oh, at Bangalore, the world record you're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, yeah, I was on 373 test wickets, which is the same as Ian Dotham, and uh, I'd had about six months to ponder uh, going to Bangalore to uh, to get the next wicket to become the world record holder. And uh, the whole team wanted it to happen, and happened very, very quickly, and as you do, you lose the toss, so you're going to bowl first, and probably for a long, long time. And I think I bowled a no ball in the first over, and my rhythm wasn't quite right, and bowled a couple of overs. And I remember you actually coming up to me and saying, Paddles, look, you've got to pitch the ball up a little bit. You're about a metre too short. Give the ball a chance to swing. And I think it was first, second ball of the third over that that's when Aaron Lowell nicked one and got caught by Chris Kugelain in the gully. So you gave me some guidance, some advice, for which I'm very, very grateful. The magical moment happened, of course, and then we could all get on with the game and relax a little bit more. But no, that was a, a wonderful um, 12th of November 1988, Bangalore, if I recall correctly. So did that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, it does. And uh, believe it or not, it, that milestone has uh, just passed. And what a test match uh, that was um, in the end, because uh, that was the one I, I recall where we had to find people out of the grandstand to come and field for us. Um, it was debilitating at times. I mean, it went from an incredible high, from your point of view, to a situation where you could hardly walk off the field. Yeah, well, I remember uh, we were in some difficulty trying to avoid the follow-on, and I was back in, uh, in the hotel and had to get out of uh, bed and get to the ground to go out and bat. I think Charlie Chapfield batted ahead of me. And, uh, you know, I think we were about sort of four or five runs short when I went out to bat, and Charlie was at the other end, and... When I was walking out the bat, I was walking almost in the wrong direction, and I remember Kapil Dev coming out over to me and saying, "Look, the, the wicket's over here." <laughs> and uh, but he ended up bowling to me, and I managed to smash one uh, in the air over gully for four. So we avoided the follow-on, which was good. Um, but uh, we ended up uh, losing that game, and then uh, won it um, at uh, Bombay, as it was Mumbai today, and then uh, lost the next one. I think it was Hyderabad, wasn't it? So. Uh, yeah, happy memories and some sad memories on that tour. Yeah, no, it was actually a, a tour of extremes uh, and one of those ones that you're absolutely thrilled to look back on and say, um, oh, I was part of it, I can promise you that. Now, uh, today, uh, you, you've got a, a, a sports centre um, on the go. How's that progressing? It's progressing well, Snowy. As you know, uh, Higley Oval is a beautiful cricket ground, probably uh, one of the best, if not the best, international cricket ground in the country. These boutique-style cricket grounds are, uh, uh, are the way to go now uh, with the embankments and sort of the relaxed atmospheres. Um, beautiful pavilion. Uh, we've got the lights now. The only missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle uh, at the Higley Oval precinct, uh, as we call it, uh, is the sports centre, an indoor sports centre, which uh, Stephen Bock and myself are heavily involved in. Uh, Bocky and Heather secured the uh, site of the old Horticultural Society building uh, right behind the Hadley Pavilion, uh, and he had this vision of turning it into a uh, you know, high-class indoor sports centre. Uh, and he came to me and said, look, this is my vision. I said, I want to be part of it. Uh, and so my sports trust uh, donated $800,000 towards the refurbishment of the uh, the old facility. 
Um, and so what we did was actually pull the, pull the current site down or the old site down and now we're building a fresh purpose-built facility. It's a community project as far as Bocky and I are concerned and yes, whilst it's an indoor cricket centre, it's multi-purpose, you can have other sports um, playing in that. We want boys and girls and schools and clubs, professional amateur sports people to use this facility. Uh, it's ideally located, um, as I say, at Hagley Oval. And we're currently fundraising at the moment. We're about 1.6 million uh, short at the moment. Uh, and the project's worth about just under 5 million. So we're actually getting there. Mm-hmm. Uh, opening day will be the 21st of February, which coincides... Uh, with the Women's World Cup Trophy Tour, which I think starts in the, at Hagley and then does its um, tripping around. Uh, and it might be, I think it's the last day of the South African Test match as well. So it's all happening round about that time. Uh, at the moment, as I say, five indoor lanes. It's got a mezzanine floor, a balcony for uh, people, the parents to view uh, their kids playing, office space for canopy cricket and metro cricket, uh, unisex, uh, two unisex changing rooms, it's going to be absolutely superb, and uh, uh, we're still looking for funding. If I can just throw out uh, something there, Smithy, uh, mm-hmm. just go to hagleyoval.co.nz, yep. just scroll down to the Sir Richard Hadley Sports Centre, and there's a donate page there, and anyone that would like to be part uh, of that and support those that have already supported the project, we would certainly welcome uh, uh, any support at all. If I could just throw something else in there, Smithy, we had a very generous donation from Sir Stephen Tindall, a private donation of $500,000 towards the sports centre, uh, which really has kicked, uh, kicked things along for us. And we're forever grateful. And if there are other people that can make significant uh, contributions, uh, it allows us to complete the project. And so the kids, the next generation of, uh, of sports people, uh, will have a facility to use to grow their love of sport, enhance their skills. So it's a win-win-win for, for everybody. So Richard, uh, sounds fantastic. Sounds an absolutely fantastic uh, project, um, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to to seeing it next time I'm I'm down there. It sounds uh, like you and Bocky are doing some wonderful stuff. So hey, hey, thanks very much for your time this morning. Um, uh, play well today. Hope you enjoy um, Terrace Downs and and the and the breeze down there. And, and thanks so much for your memories and your insight and um, and your reflection on, on the current crop. It, it's been great. Thanks for your time, mate. Okay, Smithy, when, when you come down, uh, put the pads on and I'll bowl the first ball to you in the next on opening day, eh? <laughs> uh, that sounds good. Uh, what about if I just stand behind and see if you can get it past the stumps? Uh, <laughs> will I get it past you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, there you go. Okay, mate, good on you. We'll catch you later. <laughs> Thank cool. you. Thanks, mate. Cheers, bye-bye. Thank you, Sir Richard Hadley there. Uh, do you think he was having a crack at my uh, my body shape these days when he said, do you think I'll get it? I think he might have been. That uh, Richard Hadley's sense of humour there. Um, anyway, um, gives us a, a topic, doesn't it, for you to text in on. Uh, rate your quicks. Rate your quicks, everybody. Double eight, double three. Now that he said we've got the deepest pool of talent we've ever had, he said this is the best New Zealand cricket side we've ever had. You've heard it from the best to say that this is the best team. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, Sir Richard Hadley there on the show. Uh, 9.24 here on SENZ. Would have, a little bit longer than normal, but why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? On SENZ. Yeah, what prompted me to uh, ask for Sir Richard Hadley this morning and do that uh, sermon about Tim Southey was a, a text from Chris yesterday who 
He said, hey, Smithy, anyone thinks that Roscoe needs to be dropped? That was his initial thought. Needs a lobotomy. But secondly, uh, what do you think the chances of Southie overtaking paddles is and finally getting past 431 wickets? Well, uh, he's got to play a lot longer. It's as simple as that. He's 109 wickets behind at this point. Um, and at the rate he gets them, that represents around about 20 to 25 test matches. Um, and, and that also means, of course, playing for around about another four to five years staying fit for that long. Not impossible. Not impossible. If he gets within 10 or 20, uh, then, you know, we'll see. Uh, but it's a long way off at this point, and uh, let's just keep hope that he keeps getting them on a regular basis. Someone else come in uh, and said about uh, Ross Taylor's uh, form. Um, I blame his kids, Ross Taylor's kids. The quality of their bowling to him in the backyard just didn't, wasn't simply good enough to prepare him for that test match. Um, so that's a good point too. Bringing in Wagner will make footmarks for their spinners to exploit, won't it as well? Uh, yeah, it probably will. Uh, but then again, um, if we use our feet and uh, we're a little bit more aggressive, we might be able to negate some of that stuff. Uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, how, how it goes. But uh, we've got uh, plenty more text to read out. We've also got one in from Brad here who's named his top 10 New Zealand fast bowlers. Top 10 New Zealand fast bowlers. So uh, there you go. Keep them coming in. Double eight, double three. In the meantime, it's time for Trudy. Well, a stunning late Otago uh, collapse yesterday in the Ford Trophy saw Wellington storm home to clinch an opening round victory by 13 runs at the Basin. Uh, just an amazing turnaround. Uh, Otago actually uh, 202 for four in the 40th over, needing 256. So the vaults, they fell in a heap, didn't they? Um, and uh, central to that uh, was the wily black cap seamer Hamish Bennett, who snaffled the final two wickets in successive balls. Uh, to seal that victory, and uh, he joins us this morning. Of course, Hamish has been doing uh, some cricket commentary for us as well here on SENZ. Morning, Hamish. Yeah, morning, Smithy. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem at all. That was uh, you pulled that one out. Of that. that was the one, not the one that got away, the one that came back. Yeah, I think it's one of those games that you reflect on. I think Otago lost that we didn't really win it. Um, I said to the guys in the change room, if we... Um, managed to qualify or make the final or wherever we finish, it would probably look back and um, that would be the game that got us over the line and get us into the finals, hopefully. Well, it's interesting you say that because um, I think when you when you have the amount of success that the Wellington uh, Cricket Province is having, men and women, it, you just get that confident feeling that nothing's sort of out of the realms of possibility and, it, and it quite clearly at the moment you've got that feeling down there. Yeah, we do. I think it was just well, yeah, one of those things. As soon as we got Broomy out in that 40th over and then um, Logan Van Beek pulled off a great great bit of fielding to get the run out of um, Unary Kitchen. So we had two new batters at the crease. We thought, well, all right, well, if we get a few dots here, then we just don't know what can happen. And we managed just to dot it up. And I think they had the mindset of, oh, we'll win it in the last over. And then um, slowly the run rate just kept creeping up and up and up. And then thankfully, whenever they went for a big shot, just found a fielder and we managed to, <laughs> yeah, we managed to get out of jail. Well, you started the white ball season again very impressively on the back of what you achieved last year. So it, it, uh, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's just a very confident feel you have that white ball game. Yeah, I think mate, in Wellington they don't actually play in schoolboy school cricket and um, sort of even a bit of club cricket. Now. They don't play much red ball cricket. They don't play much two-day cricket. Whereas when I grew up, we played you know, a lot of multi-day cricket. So 
I think it's just a format that everyone's very, very comfortable with. You know, where guys will come in and they're happy to like, lap or reverse lap or do something crazy like that. Um, you know, on debut, we'll play the big shot to, you know, to try to hit the ball over the fence. Whereas, you know, I guess for me growing up in the South Island, playing a lot of multi-day cricket, I mean, I'd never dream of doing any of that. And, you know, coming to the crease, I'd rather leave the ball or try and block the ball. So I think it's just the mindset of these young guys. They're just so well adapted to white ball cricket. So when they come into making their debut for the Birds or um, play a few games, they just, they just play with no fear. They're just fearless. So that's probably what's really helped us. But also, on the contrast, it's probably um, made us not have as good a ball success. Yeah, and it's an interesting how you weigh it up these days in terms of uh, what what is more valuable. Uh, I, I'm I'm old school, so I tend to kind of think that uh, I wouldn't mind getting my hands on the Plunkett Shield every now and then. Well, I totally agree with you. I think that the Plunkett Shield's still the most um, valued trophy across all three formats. You want to ideally you want to win all three comps, but if you win the Plunkett Shield, I think that one's probably the sweetest of them all because it takes the most. Hard work, doesn't it? You got to do the most time in the field. You got to take twenty wickets a game. You got to bat for long periods of time. Um, we managed to win it a couple of years ago, but I guess with not, not having Devon um, around now, who was obviously, you know, you could sh- sort of chalk him in for a hundred or two hundred runs every game. Um, guys have had to go and I guess scale their games back, which is I guess for the younger guys, it's, it's just trying to find that right tempo um, in, in the red ball game, which is you know will take a bit of time, whereas the white ball game. They already know the tempo to play because they've played it so much. Hamish, we've just been talking uh, with uh, Sir Richard Hadley and um, he's saying uh, we've never really uh, been stronger, in his opinion, in our fast bowling stocks. When uh, Hmm. you you look at the depth that we've got, yourself included, uh, with our international bowlers, of course. Uh, But what about domestically? What about the, you're in a good position to perhaps judge where we are next rung down in, in the years to come. Is this just a a brilliant cycle, do you, or do you see it ongoing? Who, who are your standouts there? Um, I think we're in a brilliant cycle. There's no doubt about that. I think the guys coming through next, uh, probably guys like uh, Jacob Duffy, who's you know 27, has got a bit of experience, who probably would bowl similar to like a, a Saudi, but you know maybe a touch quicker. Um, you got guys like Ben Sears, who can bowl fast, who's young. And there's a few other guys around. Matt Fisher, who can bowl fast, is also very young, but these guys probably just need more game time, Smithy. I think that's the uh, the key to it is they just need more time actually playing um, playing cricket. Um, I mean, it's tough now with COVID, not having as much New Zealand A cricket or New Zealand A tours just around all the COVID stuff. So once we have to get through that, then I think it's about um, just yeah, just slowly, I guess, bringing those guys through probably after that 2023 World Cup. You'd be looking for Jameson to lead the attack, you know, probably after that. Yeah. And I guess you'd, you'd probably see Saudi and Bolt and Wagner probably slowly filter out to suit the age and probably desire of, of playing cricket. And you, know, you want to slowly filter some of these guys in. He's still got, you know, guys like Dougie Bracewell, still think can add. Blair Tickner, still guys, that, a lot of guys that can add. Scott Kugeline as well. So um, I think there's a lot of skill in that there, but it just takes, as you know, it takes time to, to get yourself into the international game and feel as though you belong. So... Um, there possibly could be a wee drop-off um, after all these guys retire, but I don't think it's due to skill or, or want. It's probably just due to actually just playing that level. Hamish, you played Test cricket in India. Um, Ahmedabad, not the most, um, I think, forthcoming uh, particular climate or 
uh, pitch surface for quick bowlers um, back then and even now, I, I guess. So memories and just how hard is it um, mentally and uh, you know, on that side of things uh, to, to be a quick bowler over there? Yeah, look, it's pretty tough. I mean, I obviously didn't play that long as I went off with a you know, groin hanging off the bone. But, um, look, it's definitely tough and you've got to be adaptable. And I see, you know, seeing Kyle and Tim, what they did over there, especially Tim as well, on one leg there for a bit, was just incredible. Um, still remember my actual debut. I remember Tommy Martin and Chris Martin in the second innings running in and swinging back big. And, and we almost had, we had a sniff to win that game. So... I think it just takes a, it's just a different mindset of, you know, you're going to have to be patient, hit good areas for longer, and if you can open the bowling and take one look at your first spell, you've actually done a, a really, really good job. Whereas in New Zealand, when you're playing these, you know, spicy wickets, you want to open the bowling, when you open the bowling, you want to take two or three and have the opposition sort of maybe four or five down by lunch. Whereas if you can control the run rate and have the opposition down four or five mm. at the end of the day, you've actually done a hell of a job. So, um, I think it was, yeah, it was an impressive effort from the two seamers and even more impressive to walk away with those World Test Championship points for the draw. So it's, it makes, I think, a test cricket, probably like you, Smitty, when you see a draw, it's actually exciting. I know the general public don't like it, but I think it was just, um, it was great cricket to watch. What's uh, um, next on the agenda in the next week or so for the Firebirds, mate? Uh, we've got a Super Smash game on Sunday against the Central Stags and then we've got a wee break, actually, due to Obviously, the schedule with Auckland not being um, in until after the 15th of December, and then we play uh, T20 on the 19th, I think, against Canterbury, and then a one day again against the Tiger at the Basin. So, hopefully, the um, winning trend can continue. And Ian O'Brien is uh, alongside you guys this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, OB's been um, he's been good. He's provided a lot of energy. Um, he loves Wellington, loves the province. Um, and it's just been good to have someone to, at the top of your run-up at training or um, out in the middle when you're bowling, just to talk to about bowling, I think. Um, so domestically, there probably hasn't been too many bowling coaches involved with teams. So um, it's just great to have his love and passion for Wellington. So um, he's been he's, he's added a lot to the group, so it's, it's been good to have him around. Great. Hey, Michelle. Hey, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us, mate. And uh, uh, long may it continue for the Firebirds. Looks good again. Thank you. Uh, cheers, mate. Appreciate um, coming on your show. Thanks, Smitty. Yeah, cheers. Hamish Bennett there, of course, uh, Former Black Cap, uh, he bowled uh, against India in Ahmedabad before uh, succumbing to a, a terrible groin injury um, and uh, curtailed, uh, who knows, I mean, and he had to come back from that. Uh, and that says a lot about him in itself. Uh, when you look at that extent of injury, he's come back and uh, he's got better. Uh, Hamish Bennett, there's no doubt about it. And, of course, he was a tourist to Bangladesh earlier in the year. 9.43 here on SENZ. Plenty of texts coming in. We'll read them out shortly. Voice of sport in New Zealand. Nothing gets past Smithy. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. A lot of texts uh, have come in this morning on the, the subject of uh, Sir Richard Hadley and our, our top bowlers and just how strong we are at the moment. Uh, Dean says, Smithy, isn't it great to have our very own Wazim Akram and Tim Southey? Our bowlers are the best attack going around or as good as anyone else. We simply have to bat and we can win over there. We lost the best opportunity in the last test to win. Uh, you know, I, I think it was the, probably Dina in retrospect a great opportunity. Uh, they'll be interesting to see. They'll play well this time around, I'm sure. Uh, they're a good side. They, they seldom play poorly. Um, it's just a question of uh, where India will be this time around. They'll be slightly stronger in the batting. Um, and uh, the pitch, the big question mark will be over the pitch. And, of course, 
the toss, and uh, we're not very good at that. And uh, even if you heard uh, Sir Richard Hadley before, that's uh, been one of our big problems over there, going back 30, 40 years. You can't win those important tosses. Um, so the uh, JD, great speech of two uh, great bowlers. Um, Sir Paddles, when we were kids, he was our god. Even now, he will always be our greatest. Cheers, Anthony. Uh, Brian comes in and said, brought back amazing memories of the past. Tim has been terrific for New Zealand. What a competitor and a top bloke. Long may he carry on. Uh, Jared says, good chat with uh, Paddles. What a legend. I think the current team is our best, but when they win a Test Series in Oz or India, that will tick the box for me, as uh, Sir Richard said. I- I'm not saying that because Paddles said that either. Uh, that was the great team in the 80s. Uh, Mark's come in and said, I met Sir Richard at the Gisborne AMP show in the 90s when I was a teenager. Having had uh, open heart surgery myself, I told him, and he was so kind and generous with his time, I had my photo taken with him, and it's something I will always remember. A true gentleman, Mark from Lower Hutt, uh, certainly is a true gentleman. Uh, Smitty, I know it's a moot point, but how, could, how, how good could the chain bond have been uh, if not for his injuries? Uh, he could have been magnificent, Shane Bond. He was a superb bowler and very, very quick. But, um, you know, with his action, etc., his body succumbed and he wasn't able to uh, to play the test matches in particular that he would have liked. Um, don't If you don't believe me, James, uh, ask Adam Gilchrist. He is the bowler, the New Zealand bowler that he rates uh, the highest uh, in terms of who he ever played against. Uh, Shane Bond's interesting. He's on the list that's coming from Brad, but he's well down. Brad's given us his top 10. Uh, so uh, Hadley, Southey, Bolt, Chatfield, Martin, Wagner, Cairns, Jamison, Bond, Morrison. And Cairns will be C. Cairns. Um, L. Cairns wouldn't be far off that list for me. Hadley, Southey, Bolt, uh, Chatfield, Martin, Wagner, Cairns, Jamison, Bond, Morrison. Thanks very much for that, Brad. Uh, and uh, anyone else that wants to, to come in with their version of it, uh, please do. Uh, we'd like to hear it. Um, even if it's just your top five, uh, would you be in common with what uh, Brad has come up with? Uh, when we come back just before uh, 10 o'clock, uh, we shall have a multi, and then after that, we're going to be talking sailing, America's Cup sailing. Myth on ECNZ. You got to know when the holder, know when the folder, Smithy's multi, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Bet live on your favourite sports. Download the TAB app today. Well, those horrible Grizzlies went and beat the Toronto Raptors yesterday, which uh, ripped our ration card uh, when it came to yesterday's multi. So uh, not too good at all there. Uh, Today we shall go for the Indiana Pacers. Indiana Pacers to beat the Atlanta Hawks. That's $1.80. The Washington Wizards uh, to beat the Minnesota Timberwolves at $1.53. And a footy game tomorrow morning. Uh, Tottenham to beat Brentford in the Premier League at $1.57. And that will take us through to $4.32. $4.32, so that might be some nice money uh, going into the weekend. We'll have another one for you uh, tomorrow um, at the same time. Uh, John, these Rugby Awards and nominations have come out, and they'll be just absolutely loving it in Taranaki, won't they? Um, just looking at the Adidas National Team of the Year. Uh, nominees, Crusaders. South Canterbury, Waikato Farapama Cup team, Waikato NPC team. Uh, no Taranaki. What do you have to do to get nominated? 
well, maybe don't uh, fire up at New Zealand Rugby and say, you buggers should have promoted us. But did that have anything to do with it, Smithy? Because I can't see anything else being in the way because Taranaki won every single game this season, Smithy, and yet they're not in the top four national teams of the year. Is that a bit bizarre? I mean, they're a championship team, sure, but there's nothing else they could have done. Did they beat three or four premiership teams along the way? Um, I see Neil Barnes is nominated for Coach of the Year, uh, National Coach of the Year, so he was the guy firing up at New Zealand Rugby, so they, they mustn't be that sore about it. How, the, how are they not in there, Smithy? I don't, uh, I don't get it. They probably won't get it. Uh, so uh, South Canterbury, I, I like the fact that they've gone to South Canterbury uh, as the winner of uh, the Meads Cup. Don't mind that at all. But you cannot ignore a side that has done everything they possibly could uh, without a glitch. Without a glitch. Um, I, I don't know what more you can, you can, you can do in that regard. Uh, to be honest, so, um, I, I think they have, yet again, a reason for a gripe there. Um, just uh, looking down uh, the other list there, Dwayne Monkley medal, which is uh, effectively the NPC player of the year. Lincoln McClutchy, Stephen Perifetta, Luke Romano sneaking in there. Yeah, I like that. What a season he had. I mean, just keeps on trucking on, Luke Romano. has turned down big money for years to go overseas, now going to the Blues, of course. So he's still got it, Smithy, and great to see him nominated there. And, of course, the All Blacks Player of the Year, Geordie Barrett, Rico Ioane, Will Jordan, and Adi Savia. Which one of those do you think has the inside running? Uh, oh, look, probably Adi. Probably Adi would get that, I think, on a day-to-day basis. Um, the other three guys, uh, all back three players, basically, um, per- perhaps um, pretty much cancel each other out. I'm not sure there's an absolute standout there, although, as you say, Will Jordan, uh, every time you give him a job to do, he does it uh, and puts uh, a little bit of gloss on top of it as well. So, yeah. 9.59, coming up to 10 o'clock here on SENZ, America's Cup. This is Mornings with Ian Smith. Well, entries are now officially open for the next America's Cup in 2024. It will be the 37th edition of it. And even though no one knows uh, where it will be held just yet, the teams are apparently lining up to take on holders Team New Zealand by all accounts. And to take us uh, through uh, with a a slightly closer look at it is uh, former New Zealand and world champion sailor and sailing professor, I might add, at AUT, Mark Orams. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Ian. Yeah, hey, look, well, a desire, obviously, uh, when the protocol came out, was to, to try and make the whole deal a little bit cheaper to uh, attract more entries, and uh, it looks like on an initial inspection anyway that, that may have paid a dividend. Yeah, as you say, I think initial uh, inspection, um, entry at this stage is, is just sort of a, although it does have a pretty significant investment, and the initial entry fee doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the teams will end up on the start line um, in, the, in the 37th America's Cup. Um, last time we had a couple of teams indicate, in fact, one entered early on that didn't end up here in Auckland for the 36th America's Cup. But, but nevertheless, it's a good sign um, that, that there's some interest, particularly, I think, uh, most people's eyebrows have roused uh, with, with the announcement that Alingi's going to be in again. Yeah, that is interesting, uh, after an 11-year absence. Yes, well, of course, those of us who were around uh, in the early 2000s and uh, we went from that sort of hero-to-zero classic sporting 
uh, dichotomy from a successful defence 5-0 in 2000 to losing it 5-0 to Alinghi in 2003, um, yeah, having been a part of those campaigns, it was something I'll never forget. So in, in some ways, I think it's really exciting to have a, a team like Alinghi back in the game after such a long period of time. Um, but also there's a little bit of apprehension. It'll be interesting to see how competitive they are. I, I think it's a very, very big hill to climb for a new challenger to come into this class. It's so technical. Um, and the, the three sort of really big teams uh, or challengers from last time alongside of Team New Zealand have really got to jump on any new challengers, including Alinghi, despite their heritage. Mark, uh, Will, uh, you know, you, you said the initial entry uh, interest is good, um, not confirmed by any stretch of the imagination. Would the venue have a big sway on that? And if so, when can we expect that, you reckon? Yes, I think you're right. In fact, um, a couple of teams have already made their potential involvement conditional on venues, and most notably American Magic. Uh, so uh, American Magic was the challenger from um, from New York Yacht Club last time, and we'll recall that Dean Barker was was the helmsman on that. And they've said if the next cup is to be hosted in Jeddah and Saudi Arabia, uh, they're out. So so they will be a, a conditional on that. And uh, interestingly, Luna Rossa has also made some noises that they're not comfortable with Saudi Arabia as a venue. So so that's kind of one of those things that um, is a proviso for two of the heavy hitters from last time, one of whom was the challenger and the challenger of record in Luna Rossa. Okay, so Mark, uh, for the uninitiated, and I put my hand up here, what's wrong with Saudi Arabia in their viewpoint? Is it is it straight out conditions? Well, yeah, I think there are two issues, but the, the reason that American Magic and Terry Hutchinson have said it is is that they're just not comfortable as an American-based uh, syndicate uh, and an American-flagged uh, yacht to, to go to the Middle East, um, and, and he's intimated that it's sort of security issues that they're concerned about. Um, Luna Rossa, they haven't been quite so public about, about why they are reluctant to, to go to Saudi Arabia. Um, so, so some of it might be security, some of it might be political, some of it might be around sort of the, the sponsors that they can attract as well and their finances. Uh, quite difficult, I think, for an American syndicate, for example, to bring corporate America on board um, for an event that's going to be held in, in the Middle East and, and Saudi Arabia in particular. The other issue with Jeddah is it's a very light wind venue and it will be potentially part of the reason why the protocol that uh, was announced about a month ago has changed the boats a little bit to make them more um, suited for light winds. You know, you'll recall here in Auckland the, the quite dramatic falling on and off, off the foils kind of um, things that happened and um, those these boats are amazing when they're flying on their foils. When they're not, they're just dead ducks sitting in the water. So what they wouldn't want is, is an entire America's Cup where they're just struggling to get enough wind for the boats to fly. And that's the risk with Jeddah. It's a very light wind venue compared to the other options of Valencia, Cork, Ireland or, or Auckland. Doesn't that, though, uh, doesn't that add to the, the drama when things go wrong? No, I mean... You know, I go back, uh, you know, Dennis Connor times, you know, when spinnakers blew out and all of a sudden you saw a mad scrambling on deck and, and humans going everywhere trying to uh, put a new one up and trying not to lose an advantage or, or fall behind too far. Um, I, I, that was, uh, I remember those 
kind of moments in a race. So there's got to be that kind of element there in some form, doesn't there? Well, in terms of the excitement of watching, that was, I think, one of the unexpected um, exciting aspects of, of the event here in Auckland, both the Challenger Series and the America's Cup itself, is that when the wind was steady, it, it was very much a procession. The boat that won the start on the first cross pretty much dominated the race, and that, for the first six races, when it was three all in the America's Cup itself, that's what happened. Um, but but uh, it all turned around when we got to sort of a, a slightly uh, lighter wind range and more variable wind range, where a boat, a leg in front, could fall off its foils in a manoeuvre and sit in the water, and, mm. and meanwhile, the boat that was miles behind would be would be mowing them down in a matter of minutes, coming at them at sort of 35 knots and overtaking them, and then they would sit down in a manoeuvre. And So it, it added sort of to a, a sense of excitement and uncertainty about the outcome. So I suppose from a spectator point of view, it, it was exciting. I, I can imagine being on the yachts, it would just be hugely nerve-wracking um, in terms of that situation. Let's look at the, the protocol that, that came out, the new protocol, and the... Uh, but the new modifications uh, for the boats this time around. Uh, what did you make of those? Yeah, I think for the AC75, there's a couple of quite significant things. Um, the, the first one is the reduction in crew numbers from 11 to 8 and the allowance, and I suspect everybody will go this way, to have cyclores again in terms of generating the hydraulic pressure um, rather than arm or arm-based grinders. Uh, so, so ostensibly that's to kind of bring some of the cost down, um, but it, it will also mean that those uh, four or potentially five guys who are on the cyclores, um, they're going to need to be again extremely fit and they'll probably have uh, substitutes that they'll swap out in between races on two race days, for example. So that's a major change and, um, and seeing the cyclores, which was the Team New Zealand innovation that contributed greatly to the success in Bermuda in 2016. Uh, another part is that they're, they're, um, and that lightens the boat overall. Uh, if you have four less sort of 95 kilo guys on board, that's quite a significant saving weight wise. They're going to allow um, slightly uh, wider and, um, and more variation in the foils as well. And so that's going to allow a sort of higher lift lower wind range foil that's going to allow the boats to get up on the foils and stay on the foils and lighter wind strength. Um, probably the most significant one is only allowing one new boat to be built. Last cup there were two mm. and so all of the challengers and Team New Zealand bought, sort of built their standard and then they went for their race boat as their second generation. No um, second boat allowed this time so so you've got to put all your eggs in in the one basket as it were in the boat that you design and build uh, and have to take through to the cup. What that means is that the development that we've seen of modeling, computer modeling, uh, and especially simulators back in the bases is really important. And Team New Zealand's got quite an advantage with regard to that. So yes, it's been cast as a cost-saving move, but I think it actually tips things more in favor of the existing teams who've already got the data They've got the modelling and the simulator from last time and they can apply that to the development of their one new boat for the next America's Cup. Well, that makes it... Um, it has to be very quick work and, and uh, very innovative work for, for new teams uh, who have uh, entered or are looking to enter this time round, including Team Dutch Sail. They're mentioned in the list. Uh, 
Who are they? What do we know about Team Dutch Sail? It seems very new. Yes. Um, well, the Netherlands has a very strong sailing history, uh, certainly at Olympic level, and they've had quite a long history in the round-the-world race. Um, they've had limited involvement in the America's Cup, but, but certainly in terms of their sailing heritage and pedigree, um, they're, they're one of the strongest sort of sailing nations. You'd put them up there in the top half dozen in the world. Um, and Simon Tenport has been involved in a number of America's Cup challenges in, in the past. So as a leader, he's got that kind of background and experience that means that they can put a credible challenge together. Um, what they will be doing is looking, because new challenges are able to purchase one of the old boats from the existing four from the last time. So they'll have a trial horse that allows them to do their testing, get used to sailing these very technical um, boats and and use that as a, a way to lead in to develop their uh, challenging entry, their one new boat for the 37th Cup. So um, it'll it'll be interesting to see whether um, they can be competitive if indeed they do go ahead and challenge, but they've certainly got the talent um, within within the Netherlands uh, to to design and sail. Uh, one of these AC75 successfully. And remembering the other key change in this next cup, Ian, is the so-called anti-Alingi clause, which means that all of the members of the sailing team have to be citizens or nationals of the yacht club um, that's challenging, with the exclusion of if you were sailing for somebody else last time at the end of the last cup. So so all of the, the Dutch challenge, they've got to be from the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, this is a major challenge for Alingi. They cannot do what they did in 2003 um, and basically poach all the top talent from other people and uh, and then come up with an ex- a really competitive challenge that way. They've got to sail it with their own nationals. Mark Orams, where would you, in all honesty, with the, the way you look at the competition, the way you know the conditions around the world, where, uh, in your opinion, would you like it to be sailed? Oh, that's an easy answer. Um, Auckland, City of Sales. I, I mean, I'm a, a very patriotic Kiwi. I, I just, it's just a wonderful place to sail. Uh, and it's not just me as a patriotic Kiwi that says that. We've got the American syndicate, American Magic, Terry Hutchinson's been very open. He wants the 37th America's Cup here in Auckland. Um, most sailors actually love sailing here. Um, so so if, if you're just talking from a sailing perspective, um, Auckland, no question. Uh, certainly from a patriotic Kiwi perspective, no question. But then there's the reality of, of the money needed. Uh, and, and I think amongst the sailing community, if it's not Auckland, their pick of the three shortlisted would be Valencia, hands down. That 2007 America's Cup in Valencia was an outstanding event. It's a great place to sail. Um, and, and most importantly, I think in terms of the ability to raise the significant money you need in this game, it's in the heart of, of Europe and the Northern Hemisphere where significant corporates can see a good return on their investment. They can bring their, um, you know, their high net worth individuals into Valencia, the super yachts, all the rest of it in the Mediterranean. Um, so, and if you think about the, the key challenges we're talking about from Italy, from Switzerland, potentially um, from the Netherlands, uh, from the UK, it's all in their backyard, so it makes life a lot easier for them. So I think that'd be um, that'd be the second choice. If we can't have Auckland, well, then Valencia would be most people's pick. Mark, uh, just finally, uh, we have not got a commitment from 
uh, our helmsman yet. Burling and, and Chuk have yet to commit to Team New Zealand. Uh, what do you? Uh, I think there's a reluctance for them to be in Saudi Arabia as well, from what I've been reading. What, what do you know about that situation? Yeah, um, I, I think the longer it goes on, um, the more concerned we are becoming, uh, because Peter Burling and Blair Chuk are absolutely at the heart of of Team New Zealand's sailing team and of course they've been that, that significant change um, some might debate whether it was done respectfully from Dean Barker as the skipper to Peter Burling as, as the skipper after San Francisco was a critical call that was a significant contributor to being successful in Bermuda in 2016 and then again um, having that quality of sailors given that Team New Zealand had virtually no racing leading up to the defence of the Cup here because of COVID, cancelling events um, and so on, uh, having that sort of talent and quality that can get the best out of the boat in a very short period of time, even though you race rusty, yeah, those guys are critical in my view. Um, so my understanding, to come to your question, is that they... They were on a retainer until the end of this year. Um, so, you know, we're less than a month away from the end of this year. Uh, I would love to see an announcement come out that Team New Zealand had secured their signature. You put them guys, those guys alongside of, as I understand it, Josh Jr. Um, and Andy Maloney, who have recommitted to Team New Zealand. They're, they're other core members of the sailing team. You put them alongside Nathan Outeridge, who's a good get for Team New Zealand. Really good get. He, um, he adds an enormous amount of experience uh, and talent. And most importantly, nobody else gets him. So, so you put those guys together and, and Pete and Blair sign, you will have a sailing crew, the envy of all the other America's Cup challenges. So I, I really hope that um, Pete and Blair sign and that, that Shuby and, and Dolts can get it done uh, and that we get that little Christmas present <laughs> in the not-too-distant future. Mark Orams, thank you so much uh, for your uh, information this morning. Um, uh, A lot better informed as a result of it. I'm sure we all are. Thanks thanks so much. We await uh, further developments uh, in the uh, 37th America's Cup. Thanks for your time. Always keeps us interested. Absolute pleasure. See you. It sure does. Mark Orams there, um, professor, sailing professor uh, at Auckland uh, University, uh, former New Zealand and world champion sailor in his own right. Uh, He's got his finger on the pulse. Um, and there's so many different pulses that you have to have it on, it seems, with the America's Cup. Uh, 10.19, uh, when we come back, uh, it's panel time. And this morning, Ollie Ritchie and Mark Hinton. Pleased to be joined by Ollie Ritchie this morning and uh, by Mark Hinton as well. And uh, gentlemen, uh, I'm not sure whether you heard it, but we had uh, the great man, Sir Richard Hadley, on this morning. Uh, and uh, the question is, I guess, uh, he sits at 431 wickets. Uh, Tim Southey sits at 322 wickets. Six test matches between them, the bold and the same amount of innings to this point. Uh, Ollie Ritchie, is there a chance that that 431 is uh, on the radar for Tim Southey? It seems far away, Smitty, if I'm being honest. But also, Tim Southey just seems to be one of those bowlers that just continues to deliver, almost like a bit of a, a fine wine. He seems to almost be getting better with age, uh, Tim Southey. So I would say it's certainly not outside the realms of possibility. He just, uh, I don't know, I feel like he's, he's almost underappreciated, Tim Southey. There always seems to be questions that come up about his, his kind of performance or his, his place in the side. But, you know, I, I, I think he just continues to deliver and he continues to always 
get better, and we saw in that, that first test against India, um, the way he bowled was, was just beautiful. So, oh, I, look, it's a wee way off yet, but, you know, if anyone's going to be able to do it, I really think Tim Saudi could give that record a good nudge. Well, Mark Hinton, he's going to have to play over 100 test matches to do it, so he's going to have to remain relatively fit. Uh, Hadley played till 39 to, uh, to make his achievement. Uh, can Salvi in your mind? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, I'm in Ollie's camp here. Tim Salvi is one of those guys that um, I guess when you kind of, just when you think, you know, he might not have that real top-end class, he doesn't produce performances like that in the first test to uh, to kind of um, to make a bit of a fool of that thinking, to be honest. Uh, yeah, so absolutely he can. Uh, he's, he's about to turn 33, Smithy, so if he plays till he's 36, say, which which is a pretty decent innings for a fast bowler, that gives him another three years, four years maybe. So he needs 109 wickets. He's going to have to take a lot of fifers over that time. But um, it's certainly within the realms of possibility, but I don't know, Smithy, the romantic in me really wants Richard Hadley's, Sir Richard Hadley's mark to stand. Um, and I don't think... You know, I don't think anyone would, uh, you know, would put Tim Southey in the category of, of Sir Richard Hadley in terms of fast bowlers. So it's kind of nice that, that that record is owned by someone who was unequivocally our best fast bowler. Oh, you know, the romantic in me hopes he doesn't get there, but with Tim Southey, you just never know because he does like to confound the critics. Well, nice to hear the romantic side of uh, Mark Hinton. I've got to say, what about Mark Hinton's... <laughs> Analytical side. What about the one that uh, analytical side? The one that uh, uh, looks at the test team uh, uh, that's about to be picked and says we have to make a change or two there. Uh, is there something in the offing there, Mark Hinton? Yeah, well, um, Smithy. Um, I mean, clearly it comes down to what do we do from our bowling attack, doesn't it? I mean, not a lot of options in terms of batting. We need those. Uh, we need those batters to produce runs. I think to give us a ourselves a chance to be contesting victories and not not battling great honourable uh, emotional draws. Um, but it comes down to bowling. Do we play Neil Wagner um, in terms of uh, um, those, I guess, two and a half or three spinners, however you want to term it? Um, it's it's not a um, not a renowned seamer's wicket, is it, Mumbai? So, um, um, but I would be tempted to say, what is New Zealand's strength, it's not our spin bowling and and one specialist and one part-timer might just be, you know, all, all we need so I would be tempted to play Neil Wagner even though I guess a perusal of the statistics would tend to say go all out spin on that wicket, Neil Wagner's proven, I'm not sure about those other spin bowlers of ours, so uh, yeah, play Wagner, Smithy, I don't know what you think uh, Ollie, uh, well, how about you? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, you know, in Tampur, it was meant to be a, a, a dust bowl that was going to suit the spinners, but, you know, it, it, with our spinners, it, it didn't really look that way. I, I'd be tempted to bring Wagner and Will Summerhall, to be honest. You know, you keep, keep Ajaz in there. You've obviously got Russian Ravindra as, as another spin bowling option. Um, you know you're going to get wickets from, from Neil Wagner. You know he's going to keep steaming him uh, from whatever end. Um, you know, he, he's probably good for kind of you know, two, three, maybe four wickets a, a session. Um, yes, I know it's not a, a wicket that's going to suit seeing bowling, but, 
you know, neither was Camp Boer and our spinners didn't really deliver there. So I'd be I'd be tempted to bring Neil Wagner in for Will Somerville. Okay. Um, let's uh, take a quick break for the news, fellas. When we come back, we'll look at uh, a little bit of basketball, particularly with uh, with you, Mark, and uh, certainly the Rugby Awards, uh, Artie Savia, and goodness me, I think the pubs are opening up your way tomorrow. Where are you going to go, fellas? Uh, we'll be back shortly. Talk, big opinions, the panel. Mark Hinton and Ollie, uh, Ollie Ritchie with us this morning. And Ollie, uh, this is... Uh, really taken another turn, this uh, women's tennis thing, uh, with uh, the WTA saying no more t- tournaments uh, in, uh, in around China, etc. On the basis, they're still not quite sure about uh, what has happened to Peng Shui. Uh, this is, uh, I won't say getting out of hand, but it's getting pretty drastic. Yeah, it is getting very drastic, and, and good on the WTA for taking such a stand. You know, it's, it's easy to to come out and condemn this sort of uh, carry-on in, you know, press releases and, and statements. But with the WTA to take such a strong stand against China for uh, for the next season, um, I think just shows how seriously they're taking this. You know, they've had ample opportunity to prove that Peng Chui is, is alive and safe. And so far, obviously, what they've provided is, is not sufficient uh, for the WTA. Um, you know, I, I noticed... The IOC came out the other week uh, with a still photo of Thomas Bach talking to Punk Chui, but they couldn't release any video or anything like that. So, you know, it's all just a little bit convenient, and, and the stuff that has been released has all been by Chinese state media. So, you know, there's been nothing to convince the WTA that actually Punk Chui is safe. And so, uh, you know, good on them for taking such a stand. Um, easy to, to be so strong uh, and condemn this carry-on and press releases and statements. Um, but, you know, they've taken action, so good on them. Yeah, I, I'm very concerned about it. I mean, I know China's a different environment and they like to do their things, their own things, uh, their own particular way, but surely just produce the lady, um, say to World Tennis, here she is, she's fit, she's healthy, um, let her play tennis and uh, this will all go away, Mark. It, it, but it's China, isn't it, after all? Yeah, one of the um, more intriguing sports stories of the year, no doubt, Smithy. And just to add to what Ollie said, good on the WTA, also really putting their money where their mouth is. You know um, the money that is that comes out of China in terms of sports. The, uh, the NBA has been through this when one of the NBA owners made some critical comments about China, then all of a sudden um, various TV deals with China were were being cancelled and, uh, you know, they, they don't react well to criticism. Um, the WTA will be giving up significant money by uh, not playing any events in China. But sometimes, Smithy, some things are bigger than money and, and absolute um, plaudits to the WTA for the start. You know, we need to see that this young woman is, is, is well, is fine, um, hasn't been in any way, you know, compromised, dare I use that word, by her accusations. So um, um, there's a lot to play out yet in this, but if organisations like the WTA, you know, and uh, uh, let's face it, the IOC is a little bit weak in this, as Ollie touched on, seem to be folding, um, probably not willing to take on the mice of China to the extent that tennis is. So, yeah, for absolute credit to an organisation standing up to the to the mighty nation. Mark, Skybreakers uh, get their uh, season underway against South East uh, Melbourne uh, this weekend of course they had their 
uh, plea for a, a, a bit of a delay turned down uh, earlier in the week, so uh, they have to get on with us. Uh, the breakers uh, seem to have made a, a, a relatively positive start pre-season-wise. Uh, what are you making of their chances early on in this comp? Yeah, I think they're going to struggle in this first game, Smithy, but look, they've got to play the long game on this. I think from from what I can work out, we'll, we'll know the identity of the, of the players that have been... Uh, uh, um, struck down by COVID, um, I think 24 hours, hours out from the game, they have to produce um, an availability report for the league. Uh, so we'll know them, but they've, they've admitted that there's two starters, um, uh, and, and although they're playing their cards close to the chest, um, I don't think they're, that they're in any form to come back and clear the necessary protocol. So they're going to be down three starters, if you include Thomas Abercrombie, who's injured. Look, everyone has injuries, so that's part of the deal. He's going to miss the, at least the first three weeks of the season with that oblique strain he's got. So so they're, they're behind the eight ball from the start and they're going through this run of away games again, which only looks like it's going to grow with New Zealand's um, border policy. So it, it shakes as another tough year, but they do have an exciting group when they get all their bodies back on court. I'm not sure they can win uh, down, down key people early on. I think they need all their bodies on the court and they will be competitive and they will get better as the season goes on. But Southeast Melbourne's a solid group. They were uh, one good quarter away from making the grand final last year. So um, it's going to be a tough start for the Breakers, Smithy. I wouldn't necessarily expect them to win, but a good, strong performance will put them in position to uh, to get better as those bodies return, as that COVID uh, outbreak goes through them. And, of course, they're without their head coach, Dan Chimere, I, I believe. Uh, again, that's mm. unconfirmed, but he, he was one of the people that had COVID, and I don't think he's going to be there. And he's an important figure, obviously, the Reigns will go to as assistant Modi Mayor. So um, up against that week one, Smitty the Bracken, if I'm going to have a better than TAB, I might look at the southeast Melbourne Phoenix, to be honest. OK, Mark, I might take your word for that, uh, part of my multi for the weekend. Uh, Ollie, let's uh, look at the uh, New Zealand Rugby Awards nominations and um, a lot of the, the categories, are, I think, are really well represented. But let's go to the All Blacks Player of the Year. Uh, Geordie Barrett, Rico Ioane, Will Jordan and Adi Savia. And uh, I look at that, so you've basically got three, three outside backs come centre, uh, a loose forward, and is it an indication of where we're at without type five that there's no one from the engine room on the list? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone from the engine room deserves to be on the list either, to be honest, Smithy. Um, I think they've got those, those nominations right, um, you know, and, and you know, Mark and I spoke about this, you know, towards the, the end of the All Black season, is that we just weren't getting the, the same production out of the All Black engine room as, as we used to seeing. You know, the, the front row um, wasn't as, as dominant at the collision and at the set pieces we used to seeing. You know, Brody Retallick and Sam Whitelock were both just a little bit off their game, you know, especially the, the high standards we expect from those two. Um, you know, Artie Savier, I think, will win that and should win that. He's just been so consistent and so dominant all year for the All Blacks. Um, and, you know, those three outside backs, Geordie Barrett, Will Jordan and, and Rico Ioane, obviously have all had uh, fantastic seasons as well. So, yeah, a bit of an indication of where the All Blacks slipped up this year and, and you know, it was pretty obviously obvious that physicality was was an issue, and we weren't able to match teams there. Um, so yeah, I think they've got it they've got it right, and and I think Artie Savier deserves to probably win that award. Uh, Mark Hinton, they'll be seething in Taranaki, uh, the Adidas National Team of the Year, <laughs> Crusaders, South Canterbury, Waikato Farah Palmer Cup, uh, or uh, Waikato NPC. 
Uh, no mention for, uh, even though he's got a mention in the coaching develop, uh, side of things, Neil Barnes, nothing for his team. No promotion, no trophy, no awards, nothing. Yeah, that giant asterisk next to the season <laughs> comes back to haunt Taranaki again, doesn't it, Smith? <laughs> yeah, the poor, <laughs> poor uh, Amber and Blacks, you really do feel sorry for them. Uh, no no promotion. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I think, uh, well, look, if I was them, I, I would just be taking all this as ammunition, retooling for next year, and hopefully they get a, a real crack at it. Um, and, and coming back and, uh, and and just doing the same again. That's all you can do. You know, you've got to take your take your knocks, <laughs> take your um, take your slights. I guess where where you where you can find them and come back bigger and better. Look, they're, they're, it's, it's been a tough year for them. They deserve better, no doubt about that. Um, but it ain't coming their way, sadly. No, it ain't coming their way. But I'll tell you what's coming your way, uh, Mark Hinton. Um, you can go to the pub. You can go to the pub this weekend. Uh, so, what, where would we? Where would we likely? Where would we likely spot you? Are you going to bother, um, or are you just going to take your time getting back? Or will you be first in the door? Smithy, I'm not on on a broadcaster's salary like Ollie, so I can't afford to pay the prices <laughs> that all pubs charge for a beer, even just to walk in the door, really. So. You, you, look, you know where you'll find me at my local little Thai, where they let you bring your own nice cold bottle of wine in, and I'll be parked up there enjoying, enjoying the chance to actually have some hospitality, hospitality away from my lounge. Uh, can't wait, Smithy. I'm about to ring and make my booking now, but no, Auckland pubs are no go for me. First of all, I'm over 50, so I don't go to the pubs anymore anyway. And also, uh, as I say, just can't afford those prices, mate. Yeah, yeah, um, I can hear the violin in the background. And uh, here's the other thing now, Ollie. You, you, are, you are, Ollie, not, not in the over-50 bracket, and I heard raucous laughter from you, which tends to suggest you've got something in mind. Uh, look, Smithy, no, I'm not quite in the over-50 bracket. Um, in fact, I'm not even in the over-30 bracket. But I will, uh, I will be enjoying um, a couple of cold ones, I think, over, over the weekend. It's been a long time coming. Um, you know, I want to give back to the local economy. You know, I'm really, it's all about that, really, is, uh, is helping those businesses uh, get back on their feet. So, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to enjoying a couple of cold ones. I'm a sucker for the Auckland Viaduct Committee, I must admit it. So I'll probably uh, be lingering down there somewhere on, uh, on Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Uh, and then I'll, I'll probably try and find time to go to um, the local Northcote Tavern just around the corner from, uh, from my house here, I'm sure. So uh, I'm looking forward to giving back to the local economy. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Wherever you go, take your vaccination passports. Uh, remember that. Uh, Mark Hinton, Ollie Ritchie, thanks so much for your time and your input into the panel this morning. Uh, and if you are out and about in the viaduct area or anywhere like that, Ollie, just keep an eye out for our newsreader. I've got a, a sneaking suspicion that um, she is uh, going to hit town as well, judging by the thumbs up. It's 10.42 here on SENZ. Uh, we'll be back with uh, more of your texts very shortly and some very informed ones on the bowling side of things. Uh, and also uh, before 11 o'clock, of course, uh, uh, Louis and the TAB. From behind the stumps to behind the mic, you're in safe hands. It's Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Hi Smithy, great interview. Sir Richard Hadley is the best bowler I have seen. Loved watching him on the terraces at Eden Park. With Lord Ted on the terraces as well. That's from Clive. Lord Ted. Uh, man, what a character he was. 
Uh, hey, Smithy, what do you think about Daryl Mitchell replacing Henry Nichols at five for the next test? Gives another seam bowling option to lighten the loads of Wagner, uh, Saudi and Jamison. Then we just back Patel and Somerville in as our spinners. Wagner to come in for Ravindra. Yeah, I, I think Wagner for Ravindra is pretty good. They won't drop Henry Nichols, not in a month of Sundays. I can promise you that. Uh, he'll have a lot more opportunities before they look at Henry Nichols. Uh, and I can tell uh, that uh, old JG's not a big fan of Ross Taylor. Uh, his team for January the 1st, 2022 is Latham, Will Young, uh, Conway uh, at three. Uh, sorry, Will Young, yeah, Latham, um, yeah, Latham, Will Young, Conway, Kane, Williamson, uh, Nichols, Blundell, Ravindra, Jamison, Wagner, Saldi and Bolt. Ross Taylor could really do with the score in this coming game. He knows that. And also he could stay awake at slip as well. So that's from JG. Not a Ross Taylor fan. Uh, Smithy, New Zealand, top 10 bowling quicks. Hadley, Bolt, uh, sorry, Hadley, Bond, Bolt, Saldi, Gary Bartlett. There's a name from the past, real quick. Uh, Chatfield, Wagner, Chris Cairns, Lance Cairns, and Collins. That's from Jared. Uh, another one's come in. Hadley, Bond, Saudi, Bolt, Cowie, Jack Cowie, name from the past. Bruce Taylor. Yes, very, very good, Bruce Taylor. Dion Nash comes into it. Jameson, Wagner, and Morrison. That's uh, regards from Mark. Kenner said, Saudi, uh, Hadley, Saudi, Bond, Bolt, Wagner, Chatfield, uh, Martin, Chris Martin, Lance Cairns, uh, Danny Morrison, and the great rock. Richard Collins coming in at number 10. Uh, that is uh, a really good one. Some more to come in after 11 o'clock. Uh, we've got to uh, catch up with Louis Herman Watt and let's uh, check in with the TAB as well to see what they're up to today. That's coming up. Dead Update, your home for everything thoroughbred racing. Visit loveracing.nz, racing's biggest fan. <laughs> And one of racing's other biggest fans is with us now, Louis Herman Watt. Uh, Louis sitting there poised in the studio looking at his phone because I know he knows they're racing today at New Plymouth. Yes, Smithy, uh, a lovely card in the New Plymouth, in New Plymouth today, in the Taranaki, in the New Plymouth. Get your words out. And uh, as I always say with the CD, but especially around the Naki. Follow the market movers, and there have been a couple that have taken a good sizable shift this morning. One in race number five for Alan Sharrick, Alhambra Lad. It is $5 into $4. Its form reads kind of funny, but Ryan Elliott has been riding out of his skin, and trust me, there have been times in my life I've struggled to say that, but to be fair, you got to give the jockeys credit <laughs> when they deserve it, and Ryan Elliott is riding really well. So in the same race, there's an interesting runner, Eagle Tarzan, who Matty Cameron tipped to us three starts ago, went fifth, followed it in la the next start, it went seventh, then I dropped it and it won. So uh, it's primed and ready to bounce, bounce again at good each way value. It's actually a nice little race here, the rating 65 in race five. But Smithy, it's... Uh, Thursday morning, which means we have markets for the weekend. The Captain Cook Stakes, mm. you called it time-honoured yesterday. The field is red hot, mate. Have you had a look? Yeah, I have, and I see that uh, two illicit and Aegon basically sharing the favouritism. Leith Innes back to ride uh, Aegon. They teamed up, of course, to win the Karaka uh, Million three-year-old by my reckoning earlier this year. Yeah. Gee, was that this year? 
Oh my god, that was this year. This year has felt so long. That that sounds so weird to say, but yep, you're right. Aegon's back. It'll be his first run in New Zealand since the Karakamillion, and his form. Well, he just didn't. He won that Hobartville. Uh, earlier this year in the autumn in superb fashion, but just for whatever reason, it hasn't clicked for him. $4.20, $1.70. Hard to know what he's going to bring. Really hard to know. Really, really hard to... I, I find it really hard to stack him up into this. Um, the Australian racing, there's clearly a gap to New Zealand at the moment. Uh, he hasn't been running terrible races by any imagination. He just hasn't been winning. He could come out and he could pick these up and drop them on the head and, and I wouldn't be surprised. Or maybe he would just be fair to middling. I don't really know. But Leith's back on. Bowden's into this race. You wouldn't think he'd be winning over this distance. Just ask me. We'll need some cut out of the track. Preda Fur actually went really good at Hawke's Bay. So it's been freshened up. Probably overdue a group one win. Harlick, Michael McNabb is very passionate about it at the moment. Uh, credit manager Jivigar winner been running good races. Brando, to elicit the deserved favourite at $3.20. House of Cardia, well, Peter Denham's stable's flying. And then Miss Tycoon Rose in Travelling Light, two mares at the bottom of the book, which you have to include. So it's a red-hot race for mine. Yeah, it's a red-hot race as well, and uh, I certainly will screen to that on Saturday afternoon from Trenton. Pip Morris joins us now from the TAB, big-time master yesterday was second Pip, so... Um, that, uh, I've got a little bit to get back and they've got a couple of meetings today, Cambridge and Addington. Uh, and just before you give us your, your uh, views for the day, uh, I can tell you that our inter-show bet uh, will be Justin Thomas at $2.60 to finish in the top five of the World Golf Challenge. Justin Thomas, $2.60, top five for us. Okay. Beautiful. And I can tell you too as well, Smitty, that it's the last week for the showdown. So uh, whoever comes out on top from this week will get a $500 bonus bet to put on their tip of your choice next Thursday uh, for a lucky listener there. And of course, you're leading the way with 1200 uh, at the moment. So hopefully you can kick it home, Smitty, uh, this week. And yeah, looking forward to Cambridge today. We've got the big 14 race program there. Hoping I can get you back on top with Thrilling Raven in race two. I'm really keen on her today at $2.90. Got a twenty thousand dollar late quaddy guaranteed at the New Plymouth Gallops today as well, and then guaranteed uh, first four five thousand dollars across Addington Grays later on. So plenty to look forward to as well today. Yeah, thanks, Pip. Uh, thanks for your input, and uh, we'll be on that tip again today uh, with a bit of luck. So uh, thank you. Uh, after the break, uh, we'll be talking to our football regular Ricardo Ball. Lots to talk about with him. Um, with uh, the uh, football fans going so well. Manchester United getting a point out of Chelsea. New managership. So much on the agenda there. Day or night, summer or winter, he's the sound of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Well, there's never really a quiet time when uh, you're talking about the beautiful game and uh, to go through what's been happening this week is Ricardo Ball, of course, host of Extra Time here on SENZ and uh, by and away, uh, far away too, uh, our football expert when it comes to that. And talking of the beautiful game, uh, Ricardo, it's beautiful all of a sudden for the football ferns. 2-0 over Korea, ending an eight-game losing streak. And their new coach will be quite happy, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah, Yitkik and Clover was uh, was jumping about at each goal and on the sideline and hugging their support staff and substitutes and things. So, you definitely meant a lot to her four games into the job. And, um, a, you know, really good positive thing here was that the football ferns uh, found a way to score goals against a team 
ranked above them in the FIFA rankings and did it without Hannah Wilkinson, which has been a struggle for the Ferns in the past. They've really relied on Hannah, but, uh, you know, she's um, got a bit of a niggle that she'd picked up in pre-season with Melbourne City, wasn't able to make this trip, wasn't able to play against Canada due to COVID restrictions and things. So mm. uh, it's meant that uh, Yitka Klimkova had to get... Uh, inventive with how she sets the ferns up, the way they play, so they're not over reliant on Hannah. And it looks like that's that's already starting to pay the dividends. Just you know, four games in uh, to her tenure, which uh, which is fantastic. And she's introduced a lot of young players as well. Um, you know, Paige Satchel scored an absolute beauty the other day. Lost, uh, so uh, we're starting to see goals come from. Uh, other players in the in the squad, and uh, that can only be positive. You know, with the World Cup sort of only what eighteen months away. Yeah, only 18 months away, and of course in New Zealand and Australia, which means we need credibility, and certainly um, the defensive side of things, they're not getting uh, you know, absolutely routed. I mean, it's not like Latvia versus England, is it, for goodness sake? 20 nil. what'd you make of that? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the, uh, you know, European uh, women's qualifying, there's such difference. It, it's a, it reminds me a bit of OFC, really, you know, uh, when, you know, you have, say, in the past we've seen scores, uh, you know, 13, 14 mil of the football firms against, say, a Tong or a PNG or someone. Um, and in mm. Europe, they, there really is a, a big gap between uh, some of those nations. You know, you've got the French and you've got the English and the Swedes and the Dutch uh, who, who are all very good, but there's a lot of those developing countries uh, in Eastern Europe whose football is, you know, really poor. I think I read that uh, Latvia have only something like... Uh, maybe 300 registered female players. So, I mean, that's not a lot to, to pick from. And uh, obviously there's not, there's a lot of work to be done uh, from the European end on, on bringing all those teams up and, uh, you know, developing professional leagues in all those countries because, yeah, that, that was just embarrassing, wasn't it? It was. It was. Um, yeah, let's hope they can pick themselves up uh, off the carpet. They were absolutely flogged there. Uh, talk about uh, picking yourself up off the carpet and... Um, getting on with it. It uh, looks like that's what the All-Whites are going to have to do in this qualifying process uh, outside the FIFA window, and God knows what Danny Hay might have to come up with here. Um, what, have, what have you made of this whole... This, uh, I guess it's a debacle uh, again with Oceania? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, you know, and it, it's, it, it, it's, it's an open secret, if you like, I, I think, amongst uh, football coaches in, in New Zealand and, and probably football journalists in New Zealand as well, that uh, there are 10 countries in OFC who do everything they can to make life difficult for the other country in OFC. Um, and that's what we've seen here. Uh, I think, you know, it's basically they've gone, well, New Zealand have got all these pro- professional players um, based over in Europe, um, which is going to make it impossible for us to qualify. Uh, so how can we negate that and give ourselves the best chance of getting a country that isn't New Zealand into that spot to bring some money into Oceania? That's that's basically how it looks. That's That's what they've done. Um, and so it means that qualifying for the World Cup is going to have to take place in March, and the first, I think, at least two group games, if not the third, it'll be touch and go on the third one, uh, will have to be without, basically, their pros, because it's outside the window. So those clubs where the pros play, they don't have to release their players uh, outside of an international window. They, there, is, there is nothing to say that they have to do that. So... Um, a lot of this will depend on Danny Hayes' relationships with those clubs and New Zealand football's relationship with those clubs and with the players as well and, and see what he can get away with. But I, I think you'll see a vastly uh, different squad 
in those qualifiers, um, particularly in the first couple of games. Now, the way that FIFA set things up here means that he can effectively have two squads and bring a second squad in of those pros uh, for the playoffs. But in the first place, they're going to have to make it out of their group. And, uh, you know, regardless of what people think of OFC, you know, we've got New Caledonia and Fiji in our group. Now, Fiji have got Roy Krishner up front, of course, and, uh, you know, they've got a reasonably solid team as well outside of that. And New Caledonia are probably the second-best nation in uh, in Oceania. They've got really strong links with France. They've got several players that play sort of second, third-division football in France. And the top club out of New Caledonia every year gets to go and play in the French Cup. Um, so uh, those guys uh, probably won't be affected because their players tend to play second tier. So those players will probably be able to be released. So what Danny's going to have to do is look to New Zealand shores and figure out who we can get out of here to make up the rest of the squad. And of course, most of those players mm. won't have been involved in any all-white squad for some time, if at all. Uh, so, you know, that culture that is created and the, the style of football is created with the, with the all-whites at the moment, he's going to have to start again. And that might have to be in the January window so he can build some sort of continuity through to March. I find it quite mind-blowing, actually, with an event of that magnitude. The biggest, perhaps the biggest sporting event in the world um, that we have to muck around like this time after time. But however, uh, knowing Danny Hay, he'll just bite the bullet and get on with it. That's his way. Uh, look, uh, to, in terms of A-League, women's A-League, women's A-League tomorrow night um, and uh, the Western uh, Wellington Phoenix are underway. Uh, so history beckons here. Yeah, it does. You know, it's a really exciting time for football in New Zealand, particularly the women's game. Uh, it's going to be our first professional side, and they kick off, as you said, against Western Sydney Wanderers. It's going to be a double header. So uh, the, the Phoenix play the Wanderers twice tomorrow night, the, men, the women first and then the men. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to see what uh, Gemma Lewis can do with this team. I mean, it's a very young side. I think the average age is about 19 or 20. Um, so very young and, and a, quite light on A-League level experience. Uh, but she does have some very good players there. She's pulled a few um, people who have got Australian passports but um, could, are eligible to play for New Zealand as well. Uh, so there'll be some players that we can discover uh, there. And, you know, it's, they've, they've had a reasonably good pre-season. Uh, I mean, Sydney is, uh, are going to be one of the top women's teams. And they had a, their first pre-season head-out was against the Sydney team who had more lead in, than the, uh, than the Phoenix women's team did. And they, they lost that game 2-0, which I don't think is a disgrace. So I think they're going to be competitive. Um, I, I think it would be a massive win if they could make the playoffs. But I think that would be overachieving, making the playoffs in this first season, given how far behind everyone else they started. But, yeah, really looking forward to it. And there's going to be some uh, you know, fantastic young New Zealand talent on show on Friday night when we see those teams go, uh, go out and, uh, and, and face each other. Yeah, I think it's superb, actually. I really do. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the men's side, I'm looking forward to watching them this season. They've uh, had a draw and a win under their belt. Uh, but do you reckon that uh, Ufuk Talay has sorted out the penalty taker yet? That was interesting. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? I, I mean, that's, uh, I'm not sure who the designated penalty taker is supposed to be. From what we saw there, I, I think it was supposed to be Rene Piscopo. Um, uh, but, you know, it was it was claimed and then not scored. And, I mean, you know, that really is the cardinal sin. If you're going to take the penalty off the go as the designated penalty taker, you better make sure you net it. Uh, otherwise, there's going to be mm. trouble. So uh, I, I, I expect that to be sorted. And to be honest, you know, I, I'd be, uh, I wouldn't be adverse to them giving it to one of the senior boys and maybe making David Ball 
the, uh, the, the the penalty taker, uh, you know, if Gary Hooper's not on the field because uh, you can't have that sort of carry on, and, uh, and you know, you you need to have um, straight uh, strict guidelines within teams about how these things work. Uh, Ricardo, I've just had a text come in actually, and uh, you're qualified to answer this. Uh, I, I know it's been mooted before. Why don't we follow Australia's lead and move to the Asian Federation? Part of the qualifier, of course, but more money in it and more regular fixtures. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be averse to that. In fact, uh, I spoke to Danny Hay on Tuesday, and I floated exactly that with him. Um, you know, he was being—he was trying to be very diplomatic about the situation. You know, he made it known that he wasn't happy, uh, but he was being diplomatic. And you know, I said to him, "Well, you know, to avoid uh, sort of Mickey Mouse situations like this, should we try and follow Australia's lead?" Uh, and, and and go into Asia, and he he didn't really want to comment on that, as you can imagine. Uh, but you know, I think it's something that needs to be looked at. And really, I mean, if you look at the makeup of Oceania, uh, you know, New Zealand is a top nation there, and what are we ranked, 120th or something in the world? Um, and then every everybody else is behind that. So I mean, if you're FIFA, it's like this this organisation um, has had problems previously. I mean, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the um, heavy hitters from Oceania that run it have, have been done for taking money out of the game. It's disappeared all of a sudden. Um, so, I, to be honest, I think the best thing that FIFA could do is completely scrap Oceania altogether, incorporate it into Asia, and then look at making Asia um, two different... Um, you know, splitting Asia in half and splitting it into two different confederations are... Um, a Middle Eastern type confederation and then a, uh, an East Asian confederation. I think that's probably the best way to go. Yeah, too much common sense in that for them, uh, Ricardo. You know, the, <laughs> you know them better than that. Okay, let's look at uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for uh, yeah, football fans uh, this morning who might not be aware of the results this morning in the EPL. Southampton 2, Leicester 2, uh, Chelsea getting up to beat Watford 2-1, a draw between the Hammers, West Ham and Brighton 1-1. Wolves, Burnley, uh, 0-0. Uh, Aston Villa, uh, Manchester City, 2-1. And Liverpool dominating the Merseyside derby, 4-1. Over Everton. Yeah, some, um, some good game this morning. Actually, Chelsea were in all sorts of problems early against uh, Watford, Smithy. Um, they, they, Watford really put the uh, the heat on Chelsea and had Mendy was forced into two really good saves in the first 10 minutes. And then, it's um, callous as this sounds, I guess, but uh, Chelsea were fortunate that there was a medical emergency in the crowd, I think, and the teams had to be taken off. And in that time, Tuchel really got his team sorted, and when they came back, they started to dominate the game and, and came back into it. So that Watford team under Claudio Ranieri is showing some really good signs. They press high, they put pressure on teams who are trying to play out from the back. And uh, watch out for the name Emmanuel Dennis. He's a Nigerian striker that's at Watford. He scored today. And uh, so far in the Premier League this season, he has got six goals and five assists in 14 games. Uh, I believe in terms of combined uh, what they call goal involvement, either scoring or assists, he's behind only Mo Salah in the Premier League this season. So he's definitely a player to watch and one that some of the bigger clubs might be looking at as well. But those results mean it's status quo. Chelsea lead. They're a point ahead of Manchester City, who are a point ahead of Liverpool. And um, that's uh, that's title race looks like it's going to be tight right throughout the season. And then at the other end, you know, I mean, we saw Newcastle were down to 10 men after 10 minutes against Norwich yesterday, but managed to get a point. Burnley get a point today. Um, obviously, Norwich got a point there as well. And uh, it, it's going to be a battle at both ends. It really looks that way uh, this season. It's going to it's going to be tight right through. 
So tomorrow morning, Man U, uh, Arsenal, Spurs hosting Brentford. Uh, but my question to you is, have you done your homework on Rolf Rangnick? And uh, when, who is he and when is he arriving at Old Trafford? Well, he's there now, but he, uh, due to work visa issues, he can't take charge of the first team until about the 11th of December, by the looks of things. Um, but he was at Old Trafford uh, yesterday, uh, and so he has been involved, I think, from an overseeing point of view. Uh, now, Ralph Ragnick's been around for a long time uh, in Germany. He is a guy who was an influence on the coaching styles of both Thomas Tuchel and Jurgen Klopp. They've both uh, been talking about him in the press in the last couple of weeks. Um, about how impressive he is as a coach and how much they learned from him. Uh, that Gegenpressen, which uh, is the German style of, of play, of being fast and effective and, and pressing high up the pitch, putting pressure on defenders when they're in position of the ball to win the ball higher up, that was his idea. And Jurgen Klopp and Thomas Tuchel and other coaches have adopted that uh, and put their own spin on it. So that's who he is. Uh, he was the coach at Hoffenheim when they were just a small uh, provincial club in Germany. He got them into the Bundesliga and then RB Leipzig, who of course are owned by Red Bull. Uh, they threw a lot of money at, at, at their program and he was the one that put their program together and he coached them and got them into the Bundesliga as well and made them competitive. So that's who he is. He seems very much a, a guy who's an architect who can oversee a, a system uh, and make a club run uh, you know, top to bottom with the same system. So he's come in to United to be the manager for the first six months anyway, and then after that he's going to be a consultant for two years in terms of uh, how they how they program, uh, how they run their programs, etc. So, uh, yeah, that's who he is. He's just come from a locomotive Moscow, who are one of the big clubs in Russia, and uh, he was the sporting director. Uh, and, and interestingly, locomotive Moscow is not just a football club; it's a sporting club. So. He was the overall sporting director for their basketball program, their volleyball program, uh, their football program, everything. And, uh, yeah, I think he brings a lot of interesting skills to United. Well, Ricardo, uh, as always, uh, look forward to um, uh, your shows uh, coming up at night. I think you've got a night off tonight. But um, other than that, um, great work there. And uh, thanks so much for helping us out, uh, as usual, this time slot. Love, uh, yeah. love the insight. Thank you. No worries. And on Saturday, I'm filling in for McCarty and Elliot on air. Me and Mitch McClinigan are going to be hosting the uh, Saturday session. Oh, even better. Even better. I might even tune in then. Okay. Uh, Ricardo, <laughs> thanks for that. Uh, thank, no, I, li- I listen anyway, so don't know. It's cool. Thanks, Ricardo. Look forward to that. Cheers. Cheers, bro. Okay, right. Uh, look, we've um, got to, to come up with a, a pacing for purpose uh, horse very shortly. We'll do that. Uh, read out more of your texts, uh, and then of course uh, at 11:30 uh, you get a chance to win 50 bucks from the TAB. From behind the stumps to behind the mic, you're in safe hands. It's mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Get Nasser on the phone. He is in another orbit. Lazarus does it again. SENZ is pacing for purpose. Thanks to Harness Racing New Zealand. Well, every, every Thursday, uh, each show has 50 bucks to place on a harness race. Any winnings will be given to the charity of that particular show's choice, and ours is the Women's Refuge. We're building up a nice little pot, but we want more. Um, you can live the dream if you want to. Just get involved in the harness racing industry. Uh, visit their website, hrnz.co.nz. Uh, now, our horse uh, is uh, Cambridge Race 2, 
at 6.32pm. Cambridge Race 2, 6.32pm. Number 8, Strength and Honour. Number 8, Strength and Honour. Uh, we will have uh, a little clue for you too for Bazanizzi's frequency. That'll uh, be with John and that will be just after uh, 12.45 this morning. So listen out for that on your chance to uh, get in and win $1,260. Bucks. Uh, heaps of uh, texts have come in as well. Uh, John, we've uh, been very, very busy this morning. Uh, Charles said, uh, just on Ricardo, cheers for getting him on each week. His football knowledge is world class. You could ask him about a football team in the third league in Albania and he would know about them. You're not wrong. He is absolutely outstanding. Uh, let's get back to some of these uh, top 10 fast bowlers from New Zealand's point of view. Uh, from 10 downwards, Martin, Bruce Taylor, Lance Kens, Chris Kens, uh, and then you've got Wagner, Bond, Bolt or Southie, Southie or Bolt. Uh, and either way, three or four. Jameson, purely on average, no one comes close to 15 or whatever he is. No, that's true. Long way to go yet, though, and some... Uh, different conditions around the world, so not for me ahead of uh, Bolton Southey uh, or a couple of others at this point. You know, uh, Neil Wagner's racking up the wickets still, too. Don't worry about him. Uh, and, of course, Richard Hadley. No doubt. No argument there. Uh, Smithy, is the Hawke Cup still play for? Remember the great Nelson team of the 80s and 90s, uh, who you probably played with a few of them for CD? You don't hear much uh, news about uh, the, the Hawke Cup. Yes, well, Ken, it is. It's alive and well. Uh, and it's still played under that format where they challenge out of zones. It's currently held by Hawke's Bay, captained by a bloke by the name of Angus Shaw, a talented young man in his own right, a bit of a character, uh, and he actually uh, captains uh, the side at the moment, and they've got challenges coming up uh, in the new year. So, yes, the Hawke Cup there, and, yes, I do remember Nelson. They were a phenomenal side. They had some terrific batsmen in particular who could just bat you off the park and break your heart. You go down there with high expectations, and at day one, end of day one, they were probably 228 to 240 for one or two, and you went home depressed, tail between your legs. Uh, how about this for a list of bowlers? Not necessarily in the top ten, but, but it does sort of emphasise uh, that uh, the depth we've, had, depth we've had over the years, because each of these guys in their own right had their moments. Uh, certainly Chris Pringle, Dion Nash, remember Dion Nash at Lord's, uh, Simon Dool, 98 test wickets. What a swing bowler he was. Uh, Willie Watson, a name from the past. A great bowler, absolutely. Uh, same sort of rhythm, actually. Same sort of rhythm as, as Tim Southey, Willie Watson. Uh, Murphy Sewer, left arm over. Fantastic bowler. Murph didn't get a lot of opportunities um, to perform and uh, was a great squad member uh, and uh, should have played more and uh, really talented. What a golfer, too. Man, Murphy Sewer. What kind of golfer is he? Uh, Heath Davis. Heath Davis, now there's a character. I won't go into too much of the detail there, but yeah, certainly a character. I remember one day, he was so quick when he came down from Wellington College to bowl in the nets at the, uh, to our top order batsman. He was so quick as a schoolboy that John Wright kicked him out of the nets because he didn't do his confidence any good at all. Uh, Jacob Oram. Uh, Jacob Oram, of course, coming in there. Who can forget the tall uh, all-rounder from the Manawatu? Uh, hey, Smithy, hope you're well. Hadley, Sneddon, Southey, Morrison, Bolt, Bond off the top of the head, but the depth is just as exciting. Cheers to you, Dent. Hope you're well as well. Um, also, Smithy, just a question. Why do spin tracks always get a bad name? It's called a dust bowl, etc., but all good if it swings or when uh, it's dangerous bounce like in South Africa. I'm sure the players don't mind challenging themselves in different pitches, so is the negativity towards spin tracks just by media and fans or uh, players as well? I, I think um, it's a good question, but I think the reason why is because it's so foreign to us. 
we call them dust bowls because uh, we're used to our pitches holding together for a week. Uh, we don't often see dust come up when the ball pitches. And so when you see that on first, second, third day in India or Pakistan or maybe Sri Lanka as well, uh, you tend to think, man, this is so foreign to us. Is, is this right? Uh, well, of course it's right because you have the right to what, uh, prepare what kind of pitch you want in your country, providing it doesn't fall into the dangerous bracket um, or it doesn't disintegrate uh, absolutely and completely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they do get uh, bad names such as dust bowls, but um, they're hard to play on, uh, very hard to play on if you come from New Zealand uh, because we're simply not used to it. And it goes back to the point that we got yesterday uh, from Heinrich Milan. Why don't we consider playing the second part of the season on old pitches so we get used to our spinners coming into uh, the game more often and our ability to play good spin bowling when we do travel overseas surely would be enhanced. Yeah, interesting. Really, uh, really good text, that one. Um, Craig from the Bay of Plenty has come in with, um, yeah, his one was there. Ian Smith's had a good match here. Stumped by Smithy. Ian Smith really is top class at his job. The phones have lit up today. Of course, every day we give away 50 bucks from the TAB. And Sleep Drops Daytime Revive, New Zealand's only specialist range of sleep and stress support supplements. But you only win the prizes if you can get the questions right. And Smithy gets them wrong when you get them wrong. So we are going to Christchurch. And there's Mark there. G'day, Mark. How are you? Morning, mate. How you going? Yeah, not too bad. You got a bit going on in the background there? No, shouldn't be. Okay, all right. Must just be hearing myself coming back through. But that's all good. You know how the game works? You get three sporting categories. You choose one, get three questions right, and you win. But get one wrong and Smithy can stump you. All right, all right, all right. Your sports are basketball, cricket, and golf. Um, gosh. Golf. <laughs> golf. Smithy, it's always so tough, isn't it, for people to choose? Um, I, yeah, I thought they were quite generous subjects, actually, but uh, golf, let's have a quick golf. All right, Mark. Golf. Put on that golf voice. Tiger Woods has won a record equaling 82 PGA Tour events. Who is Tiger Woods equal with? Mark? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking. Thinking? Uh, mm. I'm thinking in it <laughs> and nothing's coming up. Uh, no. God. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll go Greg Norman. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. I mean, good to hear Greg Norman's name, and Smithy, but not him. And that was Richie Benno talking about Greg Norman. He knew Greg Norman uh, pretty well, I think it's fair to say. Uh, no, um, Mark, I got you here. It is, it is the immaculate, slamming Sam Sneed. Just a couple of chips down the wicket, right in the slot, and away it goes. Unlucky, Mark, you have been stumped. <laughs> okay, thank you. First ball, golden. Hate it when that happens. We head down the road to Huntley, or down the road where I'm from, probably up and across from where Smithy's from, and we've got Brett on the line. G'day, Brett. G'day, JD. How does he know Sam Sneed? Oh, a bit of trash talking <laughs> on the on the previous caller. I like that. Coming in hot, uh, Brett. Well, you better know your golf then. Not, well, I don't know. I didn't know Sam Sneed either. 
<laughs> oh, well, okay. Let's hope you can guess your way to glory here then, Brett. Okay, question number right. two. What year did Lydia Ko win her first major, and that was the Evian Championship? Oh, she was only about 15, 16. Um, 10 years ago, maybe 2011. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. Not correct, a chance here, Smithy. When did Lydia Ko win her first major, the Evian Championship? Well, I reckon she's about 20. 324 now and I think she won it when she was either 16 or 17 uh, so I'm gonna go John 2014 one of the worst things I have ever seen done Ooh. on a cricket field unlucky 2015 as an 18 year old so pretty amazing and then she won another one the next year as a 19 year old uh, so pretty amazing Lydia Co which means you're still alive Brett last question get it right and you'll win everything, but get it wrong and you're at the mercy of Ian Smith. So, last question. Our own Sir Bob Charles became the first left-hander to win a major when he claimed the Open Championship. In what year did Sir Bob Charles win the Open? Oh, far up. <laughs> Before your time, maybe? Uh, 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 yeah, just a tad. Um, oh, and he was the longest left-hander to only win a major as well for until... Uh, Mickelson won, I think, for ages. How, how, hey, um, hey, can I ask you how old you are? How old are you, Brett? How old are you? 45. I should have been en route to Hawke's Bay as we speak to Smithy. I was supposed to race that race at Iron Moldy this weekend, but um, oh, yeah. yeah, that felt, felt a bit um, oh, okay. with COVID. Yeah, so oh, right. Okay, well, hopefully things will free up uh, shortly so we, we can... Uh, get to see that down in, in Hawke's Bay. Brett, I'm trying to help you out here. 45, so you'd have um, been a twinkle in your father's eye um, for quite some time before while this happened. Uh, 45 takes you back to... Uh, hey, look, let's just say uh, pick a number um, between... In the 60s. Um, yeah, pick a number in the 60s, somewhere between 2 and uh, 5. There you go. What was oh. that, mate? 63. <laughs> Good things take time, eh? The old cheese ad, and it's true for you, Brett. Well done, mate. You've won 50 bucks in the TAB, and you've won yeah, some Sleep Drops Daytime Revive. Well done. <laughs> hey, yeah, Brett, uh, well done, mate. Uh, no problem at all, mate. Enjoy the Sleep Drops, uh, and enjoy the 50 bucks, and uh, I've got a feeling, with your knowledge, you'll turn it into plenty, so... Uh, all the best. Have a uh, great Thursday. Stay on the line. Brian will get your details from you. Thank you, mate. Yeah, yes. Ha have a good one. Uh, it's uh, coming up uh, 11.37 here. Just uh, time for a couple more texts. Uh, we can't play spin in India and we can't play pace in Australia. That's from Chris. Um, yeah, well, uh, that's true. And uh, was it uh, Sir Richard Hadley that said this morning until uh, they uh, win in India and uh, they win in Australia... Uh, for him, they, they won't have completed the deal. But he did say, in his opinion, Sir Richard, uh, that this was the greatest New Zealand cricket side ever in terms of uh, their depth. I, I would say if you added um, a, a John Bracewell, an aggressive spinner, uh, a very good all-rounder, a terrific batsman, great fielder, if you added someone like him in the mix, um, I would say they'd probably the, be the complete unit. Perhaps uh, bring back Daniel Vittori, although not a great turner of the ball. What a fantastic slow bowler, flight bowler he was. 
uh, put him back in the mix, and I think you would have almost the perfect side with, of course, Sir Richard spearheading the attack. Uh, Gary Bertram Troop, uh, GB Troop, um, uh, certainly uh, comes into the category of terrific New Zealand bowlers. Uh, knocked over the West Indies at Eden Park. Um, uh, ironic, here we come in. Charlie's come in and he said, look, ironically, I got three from three, uh, JD. You, you're going to have to deal with this sort of stuff. Uh, you do admin. I got three from three. Maybe it's just the mainlanders that don't get any clues, eh, Smithy? Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> okay no, next I, time, I, I'm a mainlander, mark, Smithy. Mark this down, will you? Okay. Mark this down. When Charlie rings up again, Clues. Just put clues next to his name, all right? Charlie needs clues. <laughs> will do. Uh, when we come back, um, JD will be uh, with you. He'll give you a clue for Izzy and Baz's uh, morning show. Uh, he'll talk about the rugby awards and read out some texts as well. Um, I, you know when they say you've got, it's hard to get an appointment at the dentist and you, when you get one, you just got to go? Uh, i got to go. I'm sorry, i got to go. Have a great Thursday. Nothing gets past Smithy. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. It's Bezzy's and Izzy's radio frequencies. It's Bezzy's and Izzy's radio frequencies. She walks real slow Well, Smithy says he's got a dentist appointment, but I've never seen someone wear plus fours and a cheese cutter and golf shoes to a dentist appointment before, but hey, maybe that's the way they do it in Hawke's Bay. So anyway, Baz and Izzy are putting a spotlight on SENZ's Christchurch frequency this week, and they had a winner this morning, actually, who won 1260 bucks. So that is the frequency. It is 1260am, and they are giving you a chance to win that amount of cash Every uh, weekday morning at 8am with Baz and Izzy's Radio Frequencies. And to make it even easier, here is the answer to one of the 10 questions the boys will be asking tomorrow. Which former world number one darts player is also known as the Flying Scotsman? And the answer, of course, is Gary Anderson. And there are more answers right across the day with staff and the drive team. And make sure you listen to Baz and Izzy at 8am tomorrow for your chance to win. We've had some fantastic texts coming through this morning, uh, mostly to Smithy, but Smithy can't answer them now, of course. So it'll be up to me. And coming in is afternoon host Mark Stafford, who will help me out as well. So we've got one really good one about the New Zealand Rugby Awards, about who should win that one, uh, All Blacks Player of the Year. And also someone wants to talk more about Ross Taylor and his future in the Black Caps Test Team. So we'll be back very shortly mulling over those topics.